0: Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 12 through 16 today. Philippians, as you'll remember, is a thank you letter. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, a church in modern-day Greece that he had helped start. And as he writes that thank you letter, he uses that as an opportunity to encourage, to challenge, and to exhort them to the gospel. We're very thankful to see how Paul has challenged them because as he continues to challenge them in some of these particular areas, we recognize they're some of the same areas we struggle with as a church. For example, he's now moving into a section in the book of Philippians in which he's challenging uh, the false teaching that had begun to infiltrate the church. The last time we were in Philippians, we saw how he challenged them uh, to steer clear of any kind of teaching that would cause them to place a confidence in their flesh or their ability. We can temporize that kind of danger to the modern day mantra that says the answer is within you. Uh, we believe the Bible teaches actually the exact opposite. We don't think the answer is within you. We actually think the Bible teaches the problem is within you, and Jesus is the answer. The answer's got to come outside of you. But today, Paul's going to continue to warn us about these types of dangers by calling us to a different type of danger. In encouraging the Philippians to steer clear of confidence in the flesh, he lifted up the beauty of what we have in Jesus And in so doing, Paul talked about the fact that one day we will be perfected, that one day either upon Christ's return or our death, we will be perfected from head to toe, the, the presence and the power of sin will be obliterated in our lives. But after saying that, he's concerned that some of them might misunderstand what he said about still the urgency to go with the gospel. I want to show you how Paul addresses this danger in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Philippians 3, 12 through 16, we read these words. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus only let us hold true to what we have attained. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray in these moments that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remove distraction, and Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, as we hear from you today and we hear from your word, would you help us not only be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I believe the primary danger the Apostle Paul wants us to be steer clear of is the danger of spiritual lethargy or spiritual laziness. And he's going to address this danger by giving us three kind of remedies to spiritual laziness. The first thing he's going to give us is an attitude that we need to embrace or a mindset we've got to bring to our minds. He's going to talk about an action that we need to engage in to overcome this kind of laziness. And thirdly, he's going to give us another attitude to consider. I'm going to show you this from the word of God. First, notice the first attitude that Paul gives us in verse 12. Look at your Bibles in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, Paul starts with a negative assertion. He says, look, I've not already obtained this glorification, perfection that Jesus is going to accomplish in me. That hasn't happened to me yet. It's it's mine in Christ, but I haven't yet received it. And then he wants to wade us into a really robust, healthy tension that we need to feel the full effect of. The tension that Paul calls us to consider is found in the latter part of verse 12. He says, I press on to make Jesus my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And so the tension here is on the one hand, he's saying, look, I'm complete. I'm finished in Christ. But on the other hand, I'm so urgently running after Jesus. How does this tension work? Well, think of it this way. When Paul talks about us being complete in Christ, What he's describing is the finished, victorious work of Jesus gives us security, okay? Um, Because Jesus has died in my place, buried, risen again, if I'm placing my faith and trust in him, I'm secure. I'm forgiven. I'm complete. I stand cleansed from head to toe because of the blood of Jesus. He's saying this is what you have. Jesus has made you his own. But on the other hand, he's also saying, I'm running after Christ. I'm running after Jesus with every single fiber in my being. In fact, that, those words there, he presses on to make it my own, is the picture of a runner. It's the picture of someone running as hard as they possibly can after a particular goal or a target. So here's what happens when you put these two ideas together. On the one hand, we're secure, we're complete, on the other hand, we're called to pursue Christ with everything we have. The way I would combine these ideas, letting this tension in the passage breathe, is by calling this attitude of victorious urgency. What Paul is calling you to and me to in this passage is to adopt an attitude that says, I'm victorious, I'm secure, I'm complete, But that's causing me to urgently obey and run after Jesus with everything that I have. Now, what Paul's not saying is he's not talking about an anxious urgency, right? He's not talking about an urgency that's filled with worry and fear and anxiousness. He's also not talking about a victorious passivity, a sanctified ease that says, well, I know how this is all going to end. It doesn't really matter what I do. I'm just going to prop up my feet and kind of watch the world go by. No, Paul's trying to steer us clear of both of these ditches. On the one hand, this anxiousness and worry. On the other hand, this passivity and ease to say, no, you're complete, you're secure, but that should lead you to an urgency. So think, think of it this way. Um, if you're driving in your car, And you notice one day that when you let your hands off the wheel just for a few moments, if you notice that the car begins to drift one way or the other, you're on a level road, right? There's no turns, there's no bumps, and just naturally the car starts to bend or starts to turn one way or the other. You've got an issue, right? In fact, your car can get so kind of weird in this way that I've seen people actually have to turn the steering wheel in or out, left or right, to make the car go straight, now, what's happening, you mechanic gurus out there, what's wrong with a car when it's doing that? It's out of alignment, right? There's a problem with the tire, something wrong internally that's pulling the car to the left or the right. What you've got to do is you've got to take it into a mechanic who's got to rotate the tires, do something internally, so that when you get in that vehicle, it naturally drives straight as it's designed to do, okay? This is an accurate picture of what Paul is doing for us, He's trying to warn us to the way some of us might drift, spiritually speaking, in our lives with Jesus. Some of you naturally drift towards anxiousness and worry. I want to ask you to raise your hands, but there are some of you that worry just naturally. It's just kind of the bent you have to naturally drift to that side of the road. Others of us have a tendency to naturally bend towards passivity or ease or anxiety. It's all going to be all right. It's no problem, no big deal. There's no urgency to our lives. And what Paul's trying to do in this passage of Scripture is give us a spiritual alignment to say, no, don't, don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. Don't be passive. Don't prop up your feet and just watch the world go by. The way you were designed to function is that the security and the victory you have in Jesus is to lead you To urgency for Jesus. This is what Paul is saying for you and for me. So, here's here's a question that I would ask you today What's your tendency today? What's the tendency you have as a follower of Jesus, if you know him? Is your tendency to worry, to drift towards anxiousness, concern, or is your tendency to comfort and ease? Here's the way victorious urgency shows up in our lives, okay? Just practically speaking. You know you're living a victoriously urgent life when after doing everything you're called to do, you rest and you sleep well. Victoriously urgent lives show up when I do everything I'm supposed to do. I'm obedient, I'm faithful, I'm following Jesus as best I can, obeying him and what he's called me to do, and then I leave the results to him. So, parents. Victoriously urgent parenting means that I do everything I can to invest in my children. I do everything I can to point them to Jesus. And at the end of the day, I lay my head on my pillow and I don't worry because I know the results belong to Christ. I'm responsible to be faithful, I'm trusting the results to Jesus. If I can just confess, this is confession time from your pastor. Um, I have a hard time with letting the results just rest with God. Sometimes, anybody with me? Anybody control freaks out there? Any willing to admit that it's hard sometimes to say, "I'm going to invest, I'm going to pour into my children, and then I'm going to say, Jesus, you've got them." Let me take it another direction. Let's talk about your job. What does it mean to be victoriously urgent in your job? It means you are doing everything you possibly can do with the stewardship God's given you, with your time, your talent, and your treasure, your money, your ability, and your schedule. You're doing everything you can to be faithful, do the best job that you can do. Victoriously urgent work looks like after having done everything you can possibly do, working hard, with what you've been given, you trust God with the results. You say, Jesus, I trust you no matter what the outcome is going to be. I've done everything I can do. I'm leaving the results in your hands. As a church, we're called to live victoriously urgent lives as we invest in the community had 400 people walk through our doors this past Tuesday night. I'm thankful, so thankful for the people who came through our doors. We handed out New Testaments. We smiled. We loved on people. And then at the end of the day, we say, Jesus, we're leaving the results with you. Victoriously urgent lives show up in an obedience and a faithfulness that's free from fear and worry if we're going to avoid spiritual lethargy, the first thing we've got to do is understand this victorious, urgent attitude we're called to live out. The second thing this passage talks about is an action we're called to live out. He talks about running after Jesus. Look in your Bibles at verse 13, and notice carefully the emphasis I put on the right syllable, okay? Because as I read this, what you're going to notice is Paul's going to talk about one thing he's doing, but the one thing is not in verse 13, It's actually in verse 14. Listen to how I read this, okay? Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straightening forward to what lies ahead, here it is, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says the action that you and I are called to live out, if we're going to steer clear of this spiritual comfort and ease that we're so, dr- we're so lulled into so often, is we've got to run hard after Christ. Now, he's kind of already said this, because he said in verse 12, we're to strive after Jesus. It's this same kind of picture. I've not already accomplished it yet, but I'm running hard after Christ. But what he unpacks in more detail is the destination We're running after. Did you notice it in your Bibles? He unpacks what we're running after. Verse 14, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What this phrase is talking about is it's talking about the doctrine of of glorification. It's the doctrine that says, um, when I die or upon Christ's return, I'll be perfected from head to toe. See, so let me let me break that down for you. Okay, if you know Jesus as your Savior, what happened to you when you first came to Christ is you were freed from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin no longer hangs over you because of Christ. Hell is no longer your destination. You're now destined for fellowship with God. But there's a process that started with you not only to deal with the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. This is sanctification. It's God weakening sin in your life and encouraging righteousness. But one day, not only will we have the penalty and the power of sin dealt with, one day we will be freed totally from the presence of sin. The presence of sin is what the doctrine of glorification is teaching. It's saying this. You are going to be put in a position one day because of what Jesus has done for you in which... You'll no longer have sin around you. You'll no longer have evil around you. And you'll no longer have sin or evil within you. This is the richness and the depth of what we have in Jesus. Paul is saying, run hard after Christ. Because one day, you're going to be with him in his presence in a way that is unparalleled to anything you've ever experienced. I mean, chalk up the most euphoric, exciting, exhilarating experience you've ever had on this planet and realize that it doesn't even come close to comparing what this prize is that we have in Jesus. And Paul says we're to labor. We're to run after Jesus knowing that what we have in him is secure and beautiful and great. It reminds me of the story of Jacob. I don't know if you remember Jacob from the Old Testament. He later became Israel. He fathered the 12 tribes. But before Jacob had those things happen to him, he had to leave his home because of some trouble there and go to live in a distant land. And while he was there, he asked for uh, one of the man's daughters who he was living with. He asked for her hand in marriage. Her name was Rachel. And the man Laban said, sure, you can have my daughter, but you got to work seven years. And so here's an exercise for you this afternoon, husbands and wives. Would your husband have worked seven years for you to win you and to, to woo you as, your, as, as the wife? Uh, what's interesting about this is there's a beautiful, I think it's one of the most beautiful phrases in the Old Testament because it says this about Jacob's love for Rachel. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her is that beautiful? Seven years seemed like, like it was just nothing. Because when you're doing something for somebody you love, even when it's really hard and difficult and painful, you enjoy doing it because you love the person you're doing it for so much. And this is a beautiful picture of what Paul's calling us to here with Jesus. He's saying, let your love for Jesus and what he's promised you and this coming beautiful glorification you're going to experience, remember that as you're running after Christ. And the years that you serve Jesus will seem like they're flying by because of the love that you have for him. But I think there's one other phrase in this passage that makes this, one, this, this action that he's calling us to make a little more sense. Notice, notice back in verse 13. I read it with some emphasis. Look at it again. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But notice what he says here. One thing I do. If I had to sum up my problem in life a lot as a believer, and I think I can speak for you too, I think my problem is I'm not doing one thing. I'm trying to do like 50 million things. I'm just being honest. The problem is a lot of us as believers and followers of Jesus are trying to do a lot of things rather than focusing on the most important thing. Here's what I don't think Paul is saying when he says one thing. I don't think he means quit your job. I don't think he means quit your family and go brick yourself up in some cave someplace. The one thing Paul's calling us to do here is this. He's saying, when you run hard after Jesus, everything else kind of falls into place. When you make Jesus what you love and you trust and long for the most, everything else has a way of falling into the right place. So athletic teams call this a lead metric, okay? So there are athletic teams, football teams, basketball teams, professional teams that figure out the key statistical categories that if they get them right, they typically win the game. So for example, a football team might say, if we win the turnover battle and we win the time of possession, we win 80% of our games. And so what typically teams will do that find these key statistical kind of outliers is they will focus in their training and their preparation on getting those statistical categories right because they know if we get this right, we typically win the game. This is what Paul's doing for us here. He's saying, here's a spiritual lead metric. If you get this right... If you follow hard after Jesus and you understand what that looks like and what that means and you focus your life around him, everything else has a way of falling into place. So your career doesn't define you or destroy you when you're running hard after Jesus. Your parenting, and the the job you do as a parent and how that's going in this particular season of life, doesn't unnerve you when your children embarrass you in public. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that. When I'm running hard after Jesus, everything else is put into proper perspective. It makes sense. So here's the question this passage also addresses that I want to be clear about. What does it mean to run after Jesus? What does it mean? How, how do I press on after Christ. Well, if you'll notice, I skipped over some phrases in verse 13. I want you to circle back around to those. How do I run hard after Jesus? Notice the two participles he gave us in verse 13. He said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. The way you press hard after Jesus with everything you have is by forgetting what's behind you and reaching forward to what's ahead of you. So this is a good kind of running picture, because if you're running a race, you typically don't look at what's behind you, lest you trip or fall, right? If you're running a race, you set a target or a particular spot in front of you that you're running towards, and you run towards that spot, And then once you reach that spot, you you set another place that you're running towards and you run towards that spot until you finish the race. And this is a beautiful picture of what Paul's calling the Christian life to be. He's saying you're forgetting what's behind you. Doesn't mean that you don't learn from it. Doesn't mean that you totally just block it out of your mind. But you recognize that your past successes or failures don't define you. And instead, you're replacing that with reaching forward to what's ahead. So let me make this plain. The way you press hard after Jesus is through the ministry of replacement, stopping the wrong thing and starting the right thing. This is is super important to me as your pastor because I did not understand this about grace when I was growing up. I thought grace was just about forgetting what I had done. Just about stopping doing the wrong thing. Okay, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do that. And I'm not supposed to hang out with people who do those things. Great. So what am I supposed to do? Just not do things? This kind of mentality is completely antithetical to the Bible. What the Bible says is that Christianity is not just the absence of the wrong. Okay, here are the things I stopped doing. It's also the replacement and the presence of the right things. The new life that we have in Jesus. Jesus doesn't just save us from something. He does. He saves us from hell and the wrath that we deserve. But he also saves us for something. A new life of following him and serving him with everything that I have. The way we press hard after Jesus... It's through the ministry of replacement. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, okay? Um, A few weeks ago, I very sternly tried to warn our church family about the dangers associated with abandoning God's plan for intimacy and sex. I think I said the word sex about 500 times in that message. Some of you turned red. It was really, really funny to watch you up here but I was trying to warn people. And I was very, very stern in my warning because I was trying to warn people who might be considering jumping into that. But I want to circle back around to that for a minute because after talking uh, to my wife and um, just thinking about it, I realized that I may have come across in a way that I did not intend. I want you to hear me about something. If you've made some mistakes in the area of sex and intimacy, if you've blown it, in some seasons of your life as it relates to that particular issue, please understand that God is not done with you. Please understand that God's redeeming grace not only saves us from our past mistakes, God's grace heals us from those things. And if you heard anything from me that sounded like judgment or... Um, some kind of rebuke that, you know, if you've messed up in that area, you're just done, life's over for you. Let me just try to set the record straight. God's grace beautifully heals and restores us from our mistakes and our failures. The question is not whether we are broken in this room, Every one of us is broken. Let me just set the record straight. We are all broken. The question is just how are we broken? In what ways are we hurt? In what ways has sin affected us? In what ways is the way we were raised and the environment? How has all that impacted us? But the great news about forgetting and reaching forward is that it is all predicated on the beautiful, powerful grace of God that can redeem us and restore us so that we don't live in guilt and shame and darkness. But that part of forgetting and reaching forward is bringing those things into the light and saying, God has saved me from these things, not in a way that glorifies sin, but in a way that glorifies our Savior and says, this is a part of my story. This is a part of the way Jesus saved me. God's grace is not just a a slogan. Look at my life and how God's changed me. This is so important to me because if there's anything you guys are getting from me as your pastor, it is I want you to have a healthy, beautiful picture of what the Bible says about grace. So so imagine this this misunderstanding in this way. Imagine going to a hospital that only got people just not to die, okay? So, So you're wheeled in the hospital and you're dying, and here come the doctors, they rush in, they start working, they start doing things, and they get you just right above the line at which you're going to pass away. And right above the line of when you're stabilized and you're not going to die, they say, great, we're going to send you on home now. A couple weeks later go by and your symptoms are still there, you've still got problems, they will you back into the hospital, they do the same routine again. Just get you right above the line of dying or bleeding out or having some serious problem, they send you home. What's the problem with this hospital? Human beings were not meant just to hover over death. Human beings were not meant just to survive. They're meant to thrive, right? They're meant to live and have healthy lives where they can actually function in this world. And grace is no different. Grace is not here just to keep us from hell, just to get us out of wrath and judgment. Grace is meant to move us into a whole new state of existence. You see, what Paul's talking about here when he talks about this victorious urgency is he's just describing what it looks like to live like a Christian. He's describing what life in this new kingdom actually consists of. And the most pressing question I could ask all of you today is whether you've tasted and seen and experienced this grace we're talking about. That's the most important question I could ask you. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've entered into a relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, who who died for you, who rose again, and offers you this healing grace in your life? If you've never experienced the healing, forgiveness, and grace of Jesus, the way that enters your life is through repentance and faith. It's turning from your sin and trusting Christ It's dying to yourself and declaring your dependence on Jesus. If you've never ever experienced that kind of grace and mercy, we're talking about here from God's Word. We would encourage you to do that today. Repent and trust Christ. But can I tell you something else? If you know Christ, the way you continue to experience God's healing and forgiveness and grace is, is by a continual pattern of repentance and trust. See, that's the other mistake we make. We think repentance and trust is just this one-time thing. Okay, I prayed this prayer, I filled out this card, I walked down this aisle, I did this thing, and I'm good. No. The way that we continue to experience God's healing and grace is by through a, through a continued pattern of saying, I'm turning from sin, and I'm trusting Jesus. And as I do that, I bring some of my junk into the light. I'm not afraid to talk about my brokenness. I don't have to come to church and act like everything is great all the time. I can be real and say this is where I'm at because we know God's grace deals with those things. Paul is saying we press on by forgetting where we've been and straining forward and all of that is made possible because of the beauty of the redeeming power of God's grace. I have spent way too much time on that and I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry because that's really important. Let me show you one more thing from this passage, and then we're done. If we're going to overcome spiritual lethargy, we have to embrace an attitude of victorious urgency. We have to run after Christ. But thirdly, we also have to adopt an attitude of consistency in our faith. Look back at your Bibles in verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he's saying, okay, think this way. This is how you should think. This is how you should process grace. Kind of things I've just been saying about grace. Think about grace. Live like that. But then he inserts an interesting category I want you to notice in your Bibles. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way he talks about spiritual maturity. And what he goes on to say is that spiritual maturity revolves around humility. He goes on to talk about God revealing to you if you're not thinking about this rightly. He goes on to talk about living up to the truth we've attained. And what he's saying is, if we're going to overcome spiritual lethargy, this warning he's giving us, We have to recognize and acknowledge through humility that God will often point out error and sin in our lives. I don't know about you, but someone coming to me and telling me that I'm doing something wrong, or I've made a mistake, or I've blown it in a particular area, is not always a fun experience. But part of what Paul's calling us to here is a kind of humility that says, Jesus you and what you're doing in my life is more important to me than my pride or looking a particular way. And if you're going to use someone in my life, you're going to use this word, you're going to use a message that I hear on a Sunday morning to challenge me, to convict me, to exhort me to something, Lord, I want that. I'm calling this consistency in our faith because what Paul is talking about here is a compartment-less Christianity. Some of us have a compartment filled Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. We've got little compartments in our lives that we say are kind of off limits to Jesus. Maybe some of us are happy to have Jesus help us in our marriage, our parenting, our money, but we don't really want Jesus dealing with the bitterness that we hold in our hearts towards a person. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your language, the way you're communicating to people. You're happy for Jesus to help you with your business. You're happy for Jesus to help you in different areas of your life, but there's this one little part you just really don't want him putting his finger on. What Paul's saying here is if we're going to live and avoid spiritual lethargy, there's got to be humility in my life that says, Jesus, I want you to be able to touch any part of my life that you want, and you have sovereign rule and reign. You See, Jesus is our king And as our king, he indeed has rule and reign over our entire lives. And if there's one little part of our hearts or our lives that we're saying is off-limits, it's like we're allowing a mini-rebellion to occur within our hearts. I don't know if you've been watching the world news, but there are a couple of countries that are actually dealing with this problem right now. Spain, uh, the country of Spain and Europe has a region, Catalonia and their country, that wants to break away. They want to declare independence and break away from Spanish sovereign rule and authority. And there's this clash going on because the Spaniards believe they have sovereignty over that particular region. The same thing's happening in Iraq. I don't know if you're watching what's happening in the Middle East in Iraq. There's a part of northern Iraq where Kurdish people live. You should care about the Kurdish people living in northern Iraq who need Jesus they're trying to break away from Iraq and form their own nation, and Iraq's not taken too kindly to that. There's this clash going on. Well, this is exactly what happens in our lives with King Jesus. When we try to carve out a compartment in our lives that wants to break away, wants to declare independence, there's a clash between the authority we're trying to assert in our own lives and the authority Christ Jesus has over us. When Jesus Christ claims us he claims us as king and declares our entire lives under his sovereign rule and reign. So let me ask you this question. Is there any part of your life right now that you're not letting Jesus have authority to rule and to reign in? Is there any, any part of your life that maybe even unconsciously, maybe in a way that you're unaware of, that you're just saying, well, you know, this is, this is just different, you just don't understand my situation, Spencer. You don't understand the kind of circumstances. I know this is what the Bible says, but I'm different. I'm, I'm just a different situation. You don't understand what this person did and what this person said. It's complicated. Can I just tell you my strategy sometimes for trying to get out of being obedient? It's to call things complicated is try to skirt and make my situation seem unique. That is one of the primary strategies of the enemy and of the deception of my sin is to make me think that I'm different and I'm special and I don't need to surrender to Christ. If you know Jesus, Jesus has sovereign rule and reign over every compartment of your life. Church, we live at the lake. We live at the Lake of the Ozarks. And one of my concerns is that oftentimes we can be lulled into a form of spiritual lethargy, spiritual comfort and ease in which we prop up our feet and just watch the world go by. Let's not be those people. Let's be a people that are consistent in being victoriously urgent, consistent in running hard after Jesus, and consistent in letting Jesus touch any part of our lives with his authority and rule and reign. Would you please pray with me? Father God,